Church family, go ahead and uh, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. As we continue uh, this week in our meditations, this is sermon number three in our Advent series. Um, I've got exciting news. I've settled on what will be our, our book of 2023 and beyond, but I'm leaving it as a surprise. Um, you're going to be so excited. You're just going to be thrilled. It's going to just make your day. We're going to start that on January 8th, so make sure you're here just every week, but that one too. We're going to look primarily at chapter 11 of Isaiah. We're also going to look around a bit at uh, chapter 53 will be our other primary area that I want to begin by turning to Isaiah 11. We first saw, if you remember, the need for a Savior in Isaiah chapter One, how it's because of rebellion that we, as the New Testament Israel, need the Lord. Uh, We need salvation. We saw that can't come through religious sacrifices or service or atoning sacrifices of animals or even prayers. We are so sick from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. We desperately need God to save us. And in the second week, last week, we saw the promise of a Savior from Isaiah 9 how there would be one who would come as ruler that bears the government on his shoulders. He'll be called Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And now we're going to look at how he accomplishes salvation. So today we'll be looking at the work of the Savior. We'll begin in Isaiah 11. We'll read the first five verses, and then I'll let you sit down. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. And faithfulness, the belt of his waist. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, Lord, we, we do not pray because we think by merely our vain repetitions that you will hear us. But we pray because of our sense of need for your help. We have already entered into worship of this Emmanuel, this shoot of Jesse, branch of David. We've already sung of him. We've sought to worship you in knowledge of him. And it would be our desire this morning that you would come and give us more of an understanding of who he is, of what he's done, and of how he has accomplished our salvation. So please, Father, we beg you, give us the help of your Holy Spirit, for speakers and hearers alike, that we might know your presence among us, Today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we're going to continue in this series kind of the the way we've been continuing, just going line by line uh, through a couple of texts starting in Isaiah chapter 11. And, And as we look at Isaiah 11, what does Jesus as the promised Messiah need to do in order... Uh, to bring about the promises of God. What was God's great gift to us out of his love to accomplish in his days, and what 
will he yet accomplish? Well, we see first in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that this is a work of righteous judgment. The work of the Savior, the promised one from Isaiah chapter 9 um, and on, will be a work of righteous judgment. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse is, of course, the father of David. Therefore, he is of the Davidic kingly line. He is the one who will sit on David's throne. See right here, this is a promise of a king, and as king, what will he do? What will his reign be like? Well, he will do what he does based on the power of God's spirit in him. So notice verse 2 kind of starts this list of things the Spirit of God will do. Verse 2 starts with the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit comes and permanently resides there. This king will not be like that guy King Saul, you remember, who has the Spirit come upon him and anoint him. And then because of his sin, remember, the Spirit departs from him. So, so the good news about this king is that this king is not temporary. He's not going to fail He's going to be a good, righteous king, and the Spirit will come and abide on him. Now, we see that in the baptism of Jesus Christ, don't we? When the Spirit comes in the form of a dove to rest on him and never departs from him. So there's the promise that this king will be anointed by the Holy Spirit and will never lose that anointing. Never will he fail the Lord. By virtue of the Spirit of the Lord, notice again in verse 2 that the Spirit of wisdom and understanding... In other words, this king will have complete understanding. He will have the wisdom of the Lord. So he's not going to be like our earthly leaders and kings, struggling, hearing multiple testimonies, kind of trying to sort out who's telling the truth here, who's lying. He knows complete understanding. He does not judge by the seeing of his eyes, but he's the one who's been given the Spirit of the Lord, complete understanding. Therefore... Because of this, when he makes a judgment, you know what you know? That it's a right judgment. That it's always a right judgment. See, this king is not confused. This king has access to all of your data, all your thoughts, all your deeds, and even when things don't seem like they're going right in this world, when people seem to be getting away with things, this is the king who has complete wisdom and understanding. So the judgment, therefore, he makes is based on reality and facts, not the lies of people. He cannot be deceived. He goes on to say in verse 2, the spirit of counsel and might. When you need to know what to do in a situation, he's going to be a king who is going to be able to tell you exactly what to do. If we're honest with ourselves, the counsel that we give to one another is at best, well, Here's what seems right to me, perhaps under these circumstances. But this king has the spirit of the Lord upon him. And when he gives counsel, it's always right. We say, well, no, 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 you just don't understand. But he does. No, no, no. You see, he told me to love my enemies, <laughs> right? He, he doesn't understand what it means to be hated by enemies. Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> He doesn't understand how hard it is to forgive. Yes, he does. So when his counsel comes, it's a counsel of might, 
of strength. And this makes his people mighty by taking his counsel. He goes on to say in verse 2 again, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is what the Spirit of the Lord does when He comes upon us, right? This is the promise of the Holy Spirit that fully dwells in Him and is now by God's grace through our conversion been brought to us. The Spirit comes now and He rests on us, gives us wisdom and understanding, counsel of might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now you may ask, what, what is that fear? What is the fear of this Yahweh? Well, do you remember what happened when, with those old kings... Right, you ever read through the book of First and Second Kings, and obviously we've seen a lot of King David. You were in our Old Testament survey class, you saw that. What happened with those kings? Well, they would fear the Lord for a little while. They swear upon Yahweh. They say, I swear I will follow the word of God, and then they lose the sense of the presence of God. And they start to think, you know, this this power thing feels pretty good. So David says, you know what, I I can take a woman that's another man's wife. These other kings say, you know what, I can set up an altar and have people worship me. I can take the money, the sacrifices that belong to the Lord and use them. Why? Because they lose their fear of the Lord. But this king, this promised branch, this is the one who will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will always, throughout all eternity, live in the presence of the Father. And if there's anything that you need to know about Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth, it's that he always did what pleased the Father. Like, just imagine that. It seems so foreign to us, right? Because there are times, I'm sure, in our lives where we we try hard at this, don't we? You know what? Lord, today, today is the day I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, today, I'm going to have you on my mind All day long. I just need to think about God today. I need to live in his presence. And then we get going. We start homeschool, right? Our kids spill something on the table or on us. Are we thinking in those moments? God is present. He's here and he's watching me. You get cut off on your ride to work. And you think, Lord, I know you're here. Or do we think, Why did you spill that for the 10th time? What's wrong? Jesus never, never loses his awareness or his sense of God's presence, ever. He always, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, walked with the sense of the presence of the infinite personal God. Why? Because his delight was in the fear, the reverence, and the all of God. When, when, well, listen, not to sound crass, but, but when Jesus was going to the bathroom, when he was cleaning up after other people, when he was caring for people, when he was playing in games, when he does things that are very human, he always did so with the fear of the Lord. Even at the cross, as God had abandoned him, he still cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still had a sense of the presence of God, even in the absence of his presence. Therefore, he is a mighty and righteous king. Verses 3 and 4 tell us his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, For the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. This king and the power of this king's words, they're mighty to accomplish their very purposes. But this king, when he speaks, it's fully accomplished. See, there aren't going to be little pockets of the earth that have somehow escaped the judgment of Christ. 
Then in verse 5, there's now a beautiful description of the stump of Jesse. It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. In other words, this one will be completely clothed with faithfulness and righteousness. And in that imagery, it shows us that he will never be undressed or unfitted for his kingship. So there are these wonderful promises that when this one comes, he's, listen, to be frank, he's going to kick tail, take names, bring about justice, raise up the poor and oppressed. And that, for Israel, is pretty great news. Look, remember the audience here. We want to get into the audience that's hearing this. And, and what is this audience? Well, this audience is about to be destroyed by a foreign empire. But here they have the promise of God. One is coming. And this one that's coming, he's going to bring justice and judgment and righteousness to the earth. He will never fail. He will always have perfect counsel, perfect knowledge. This is the guy you've been waiting for for centuries. It's a promise. So this work will be a work of righteous judgment. But the second thing we see is this work is a work of Edenic restoration. Edenic restoration. He's going to bring about a restoration that's going to be like the Garden of Eden, right? That's where that word Edenic comes from. But it's actually going to be better <laughs> than the Garden of Eden. Uh, we, we did a study in Revelation in our Sunday school class not too long ago. This is my, always my favorite part about thinking of the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be like the Garden, and yet it'll be unspoiled, without sin, forever and ever. I'm looking forward to that, by the way. Notice in verses 6 through 9, speaking of this connection to the shoot of the stump of Jesse, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. When has this ever happened? Only once. The garden, right? Imagine waking up as the first Adam and you go, Whoa, look, look at that beast over there. Man, he's really big. His roar is super loud. I'll call him lion. And then you see, oh my goodness, look at that sweet little thing. That's, there's a lamb over there. And they come by him together. He names them and there's peace. What God is saying through Isaiah is when Jesus comes, this is what's going to be restored. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. You don't have to worry about that little child being torn to pieces when this one comes ruling righteously and destroying the wicked. When he delivers the earth from its growing, it'll be like Eden again. Notice verse 7. I love this, by the way. The cow and the bear shall graze. Like, just, just picture a cow eating grass. And then next to him, right next to him, there's a bear eating grass. And they just look at each other. Maybe it's like Narnia, and they say, hey, how's the grass today? Not bad. How's yours, right? Pretty good. They're just grubbing together. It's remarkable. You know what I find fascinating? I find fascinating these, uh, these YouTube or Facebook videos of these people who, like, keep pet lions. And I'm just like, you're, you're begging to get mauled there. You know what I mean? Like, you're... You're asking for it, and the lion will come up and, like, hug the person, and they'll have, like, scratches all over them, and they act like they're excited. I'm like, you're a maniac. Like, who, who does that? Hey, come here, hug me, lion. Um, no. It's, it's weird today. But listen, this is the description of the new heavens and new earth. It says, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. My daughter, by the way, um, 
hates when animals are killed forever. She, does, she really doesn't belong in Callahan. We're going to have a problem here coming up soon. Um, and so, uh, because she's, she's, I think it was Brother Burton Scaff who told her about his hunting trip several times and scarred her for life. Um, so, um, but she loves this verse, right? She likes the hope that it won't always be that way. The lion will one day eat straw like the ox. And that's absurd. But all of this imagery, again, it's Edenic, right? It's an Eden-like atmosphere of what this king is going to bring. And like we saw last week, He's the Prince of Peace, so of course it's going to happen. When he comes, this kind of radical thing will happen to the new heavens and new earth. Verse 8, moms get ready for this one. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. So moms, you're, you're nursing your baby. Maybe your arms get tired. I'm going to lay this baby down. Oh, there's a cobra's hole. I'll lay him next to the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Honey, no! Don't put your hand in there. No, it's okay. See, it's just a snake. Mom, I have dominion over this. It's just remarkable, isn't it? Don't get any ideas, kids, by the way. Um, this, is, this is not, we're still in a Genesis 3 world. We're not Edenic yet. Uh, Verse 9 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't know if you know this, but waters cover the sea. (laughs) That's the point. This is complete redemption. This is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness and knowledge of the Lord will bring absolute peace to all the creation. The creation has its groaning and oppression removed from it. All the creatures will cry out glory and praise to God. They will dwell together in peace because this is God's final chapter of saying, you ruined it. You ruined it, but I not only redeemed it, I made it better. It shows that where sin has abounded, grace much more abounds. And and listen, that, brothers and sisters, is our destiny. That's where we're headed. And so for the Israelite, the old covenant Jew, reading this, it's, it's mind-boggling to them. right? Remember, we talked about the imagery last week about somebody who was in darkness seeing a great light, seeing something for the first time they came and rationalized it. It's kind of like in the, the Force Awakens where, where Ray travels to the forest planet of Takadana after living in Jakku her entire life. And she sees this green planet and she says, I I never knew there was this much green in all of the galaxy. Was that the nerdiest sentence I think I've ever said? Okay. I'm cool with it. I am who I am. Um, The experience, listen, really the imagery is perfect because the experience of the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be a lot like that for us. We will look and we will say, I never knew there was this much green. It's everywhere in this book. In Isaiah 51.3, this becomes one of the clearest prophetic declarations that really makes this a main theme of the book. Isaiah 51.3 tells us, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. That's what we're going to be doing. Not just enjoying God, but His creation and enjoying God as He intended for us to enjoy. We'll be thanking Him for His goodness and kindness. Why? Because the wilderness and desert have been made like the Garden of Eden. It's remarkable, isn't it? 
All right, turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 65. We're going to look around a little bit here. Because this is a promise that's not just here, it's just everywhere in this book. In fact, if you look at, starting in verse 17 of Isaiah 65, it's toward the end of the book. It's actually, I think, the next to last chapter. This is one of the reasons, by the way, Isaiah is called the, the gospel prophet of the Old Testament. How is this going to happen? Well, remember what we just looked at in chapter 11. This is all associated with the coming of the, the shoot of Jesse, the, the branch from his roots bearing fruit. Now, look what it says in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build uh, in another inhabitant. They shall not plant in another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Another text, just keep on Isaiah 66. One over should be on the same page. The conclusion of the book, speaking of the work of the Messiah coming in verse 15. It says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Remember, it's a work of righteous judgment, right? He's, he's going to come in judgment. But then as we see in the next verses, that very judgment is going to bring about the Edenic restoration. Look at verse 18 of Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tabal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then, uh, then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, 
For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Now, just leaving those promises here as they are, can you imagine, can you imagine, just think about this, being a Jew under the Old Covenant? What kind of Messiah would you be expecting according to those verses? Well, first, obviously, you're expecting a king, right? Son of David. Someone who's going to have a powerful government resting on his shoulders. He will overthrow his enemies. He'll bring about by his obedience the blessings of God upon the land. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But there's a problem. The problem begins when this one comes and starts saying, I am the son of man. When they're calling him out to be the son of David, he says, I'm the son of man. When he says the kingdom of God is among you, There were some of them that were going right on. We're in. We've heard Isaiah. We're going to kick the butts of our enemies. This is going to be awesome. The Lord is going to bless us like he promised to bless us in the land. Then he says this perplexing thing. The Son of Man will be crucified. Um, Okay, what? I'll be rejected by the leaders. I'm I'm going to be rejected. It it doesn't fit. Not Not with this expectation. No, 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 no. This king is coming to destroy and rule. That that doesn't fit the agenda because when you die, especially on a cross, you're cursed by God. And the king's not cursed. We can tell you that. This king we're longing for is not cursed. And so when he starts speaking to them and says, you're in bondage to sin, they say, we've never been in bondage. And he says, I'm going to be crucified. And they say, you're full of the devil. To the point where he starts doing miracles to affirm the message of his messiahship, and they say, you're doing this by the power of Satan. They say, you're not the guy. See, there's a turning point in the Gospels where where Jesus has this great popularity period. And then he begins speaking specifically of the crucifixion, of self-denial, things like love your enemies, take up your cross and follow me. No. Nuh-uh. Pray for our enemies? Bless our enemies? This is not our king. He said we're going we're gonna to win. Brothers and sisters, this is why they killed him. You recognize this, right? Because they misinterpreted Isaiah. And from what we know from the rest of the book of Isaiah, a couple of major things happen among the Jewish people and the interpreters of the Old Testament. Because we're about to turn to Isaiah 53, and this is what they miss. Here's what they miss about Isaiah 53. Uh, One was was among some communities that they actually came up with the theory that there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be one who suffers later and one who will come after that of the unjust suffering and he will come and conquer. By the way, it just brings in your mind why many of them ask, hey, Jesus, is John the Baptist, is he the one one that's going to suffer? Possibly. That's what they thought. Another thing that happens is, of course, they just flat out reject him as messiah. This is not it. This is not the guy at all. Or the third thing happened. This is still the major thing that happens in Judaism today, as we're about to see regarding this suffering servant in Isaiah 53. They'll say, it's not the guy. It's the nation. The nation of Israel is personified as my servant, and it's to give the nation comfort, because you are my servant, but my king is coming. Well, the only way we can make sense of Jesus is when we come to this third point and understand that his work will not only be a righteous judgment, 
an Edenic restoration, but it will be a work of substitutionary sacrifice. And it was this single point that was and continues to be a major stumbling block among the Jews. So let's look at Isaiah 52. This is going to be apologetic in some some way for many of you as you may encounter some people of Judaism and have an opportunity to, to tell them that Messiah has come, His kingdom is here. And look at Isaiah 52 to defend that position. Start in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Okay, we're with you there so far. Verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Well, okay, which is it? Verse 13 or verse 14? Is he going to be lifted up and exalted? Or will we be astonished at his appearance? The answer on the cross is both. If I will be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself like the serpent on the stick in the wilderness. And then verse 15 of Isaiah 52, So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told, them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. This is so astonishing. This this servant of the Lord is so astonishing that the prophet begins to ask questions. That's why verse 53, or chapter 53 and verse 1 starts off with, Who's believed our report? A suffering servant? A suffering Messiah? A suffering king? That in suffering he gains victory through death? He exalts a people through his own namesake? Who has believed this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been Revealed. By the way, just remember Isaiah 9, the promise of that that one who's coming, the birth of a virgin, right? Look at chapter 53, verse 2 and 3. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. It's Isaiah 11. And a root out of dry ground. That's Isaiah 11. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So for the fulfillment of prophecy, people are looking at this man saying, you're doing the work of a demon and your miracles. And what did this do? Listen, this caused him sorrow and grief. Now, we we can't get the impression that Jesus was simply nonchalant about their unbelief. That was actually part of his suffering. His crying out for Jerusalem, for his people to come. He shed tears over his people because it was that despising and rejecting that caused him much sorrow and grief. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This, by the way, is its explicit language of sacrifice. Because under the old covenant, who was it that bears the grief, the sorrow, and the sins of the people? Who did they put the hands on? It was the lamb, right? You lay your hand on the sacrifice so that that sacrifice can bear away your sins. You don't have to have the guilt anymore. Here's the one who's despised, but even though he's despised, he's a bearer of sin and guilt. Yet, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. We see him crucified, tortured. Why was this? 
Right? If he was the righteous one, if he was the seed, the son of David, if he's obedient to the law, to the very jot and tittle, then, then why, oh why is he suffering? Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Do you hear that substitutionary language there? This one has come to suffer for the sake of the people. The question is, who is worthy to bear substitutionary atonement? See, this is where our Jewish friends have a difficult time because can Israel bear the sins and the suffering as a people for the world? No. This is the servant of the Lord. He alone is the one who can do this. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is the one who put his hand on this one who transferred all the sins and iniquities of us all over to him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In other words, he didn't cry foul. Anybody get to watch the World Cup at any point? This I just can't do it. I'm so sorry. Um, any soccer fans we have in here? Good. You know why? Because you're in Callahan, Florida. That's why. Um, I can't. I, two seconds. And I mean, listen. I, I'm an avid sports fan. I've, I've seen people take hits. I've seen people take 99 mile per hour fastballs to the gut. You know, I've seen uh, grown men in the NBA just get destroyed going up as fast as they can to get the shot blocked. I can't deal with a European running and just getting touched and flailing and wobbling around like he's just died. I can't, I can't do it. I can't. Um, I, didn't even, I didn't even mention American football, the real football, right? But listen, it, they cry foul every time, right? Cry foul. Cry foul. He did not. He didn't at any point in time say this is unjust. He did not open his mouth because it was for this reason he came. What reason? to die for the sins of the world. Verse 8. No diss to you if you like um, soccer, it's fine. Uh, Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So guys, listen, if if eyes are able to see and ears are able to hear, someone reads this passage and says, of course. When he comes and says it has been appointed for him as the Son of Man not to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many, you read Isaiah 53 and you say, of course. When he says the Son of Man will be betrayed and put in the grave for three days, you read Isaiah 53 and say, of course. Of course he will. It's part of the work of the Messiah. It's the only way things can be made right. 
It's the only way that the sins of the world can be borne away. It's the only way the creation can be delivered from its corruption. The only way this can happen is by a holy God who is righteous, dealing with an unholy, unrighteous, wicked, sinful humanity. It only can only come from a substitutionary atonement for our sins. That's it. So by way of application, two things very quickly. The first is this. What we see here is a picture of Jesus the Messiah as the last and perfected Adam. He's the last and perfected Adam. He's the one who comes and exercises dominion over the new earth, which is inaugurated at his resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the guarantee of our salvation. What he's doing in his ministry on the earth is demonstrating, when I come back, this power that you're seeing right now is like a little thumbnail sketch of what's coming. Right? Listen, you, you know that, right? They're, they're, like, they're just like trailers, like a teaser trailer. When you read through the Gospels, that's what you're reading. It's a teaser trailer for the new heavens and new earth. When you read through the Gospel and you say, this is what heaven's going to be like. People raised from the dead, new bodies, new creations in Christ. And so what Jesus does is what the first Adam and what we have failed to do, and that is exercise his dominion over creation. There's an incredible promise that through his righteous judgment and atoning sacrifice that he's coming again. And listen, we need to hear this, brothers and sisters. Our final destination, you know, it's not heaven. Did you know that? Our final destination is the new heavens and new earth. There's a sense in which even those who we love, who have gone before us, who, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, who are now asleep, they're also awaiting the new heavens and new earth. They're awaiting to be reunited with their fully glorified bodies. That's our final destination. It's this place. It's tangible. It's physical. It's resurrected glory. It's lambs, lions, serpents, and children living in a perfected world without the possibility of sin, without the possibility of death, without judgment, and the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That's the ultimate goal of God in Christ. And so he is the Adam who did not fail. He is the Adam who was tempted not in the garden, but in the wilderness. He's the Adam who didn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he was nailed to a tree for our sakes. And so in this season and in this time, let us worship this amazing anointed one. Let us see and acknowledge, see and embrace into who Jesus is for us. I've just barely scratched the surface. But take the time out of the business of the season to recognize this is the one who has sealed our very destiny. Second, and probably less fun, but equally as important, the second application here is that the pattern of Christ is first suffering, then glory. And I know we, we taught on this recently in Man of Sorrow's sermon from Matthew 26 and 27 about a month ago, but we need to hear it again. Because when does the judgment and new heavens come? First comes suffering, then comes glory. And here's what we do with the gospel often. We say things like, Jesus suffered and entered into glory, and so now he suffered for us. We can bypass the suffering part. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Oh, man, but, but why am I suffering? Why did supposedly bad things happen to supposedly good people? 
It's because we assume that because Jesus took care of all of these things that we bypass suffering. If things are hard, then either we're doing something wrong or God's punishing us. But but listen, this pattern of Christ, first suffering, then glory, it's the very pattern of his followers. It's just all over the Bible. Sorry. Not sorry, actually. That's actually, sorry, not sorry. That's how I said that saying before. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Right? Listen to how Peter describes a man who had, who had come to understand who Jesus was as he's revealed in Isaiah. Listen to what he says. He says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, suffering, then glory. Writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 2, we know very well. He writes, who for the joy, speaking of Jesus, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Just think about all of the passages in the New Testament that speak of this reality to us. I'm not going to go into too many of those because we just went through them. Glories are to come, but it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through these sufferings, through these difficulties we face. But the promise that holds us fast, even in the midst of those sufferings, is that glory is coming. There are glories to come. And and you know why that's encouraging for us? It's because we recognize we don't earn any of those glories. We didn't purchase that for ourselves. We didn't do anything to attain those glories. It's given as a free gift. How do you not recognize and say, praise God? How do you not look at suffering differently knowing, you know what? This is actually what I deserve and earn. This is actually what I've purchased with my works of righteousness. And yet, this is only light and temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory that's awaiting me because of Christ. Oh, if we only viewed our sufferings in that way. So it's because of this that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So there's an identification that as the Savior lived in his earthly ministry up to the time of his resurrection, that's the pattern for us. Living in the kingdom, resurrections to come, glory is to come. But until then, we must ask ourselves, what does it look like? What does it mean for me to imitate Christ? It means to be a people who are acquainted with sorrows and grief. It means suffering for the sake of others. It means to believe by faith that God can actually use, yes, even our sufferings to change the world. May He give us help to believe. Would you stand as we close this morning? Lord, who has believed your report that the Messiah should come not only as a great king and son of David, but as a suffering servant? For those with ears to hear, we marvel at him. We love Him. We are astonished at His humility and service for us. Father, may may we draw near. 
May we know the fellowship of His suffering. So we, we worship You in this season. Yes, Lord, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for the gift of Christ and all that He is. We want to know Him more. We want to love Him more. We want to be made more into His image, be conformed to His image. But Lord, we need Your help to do so, for we're weak. And yet, Father, you've promised that you who began this good work in us will complete it. So may we rest in your promises, but let that rest not turn to apathy. (laughs) Father, even in that rest, there is work to be done. As we strive, as as we long to live for you, Father, give us tangible and real ways that we can be actively repenting and putting on righteousness. Trusting, of course, your spirit to work. Father, if there be one here this morning who has not yet recognized the work of of the Savior, that, Lord, today would be the day they would repent of their sins and they would trust very much in this perfect work of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That they would know that it is full and final and enough to pay for every one of their sins. And that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts as, Lord, we recognize we've suffered much. And we don't downplay any of the sufferings that we've went through and we're going through. And, Lord, as a church, we're still suffering. Many here are hurting. Many here throughout the Christmas season are constantly reminded of their hurt and of their suffering. Father, please help us not only to focus on our sufferings. Please help us not to just simply stop there. Please help us instead shift our focus on the glories that are to follow. Lord, that yes, we would hurt and we would grieve, but we would not do so alone, that we would know your spirit of comfort and help that would continue to encourage us to press on, to long for you. And Lord, to focus on what we've earned and deserved and yet what you've given through your son. Lord, how could that not turn this season into a season of praise? How could that not turn our hearts of sorrow and grief to constantly longing to praise you in the midst of our sorrow and grief? Do that work, we pray, in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the time of our invitation, I hope it's, it's clear for those of us who are in Christ that we would long for the new heavens and new earth, that we'd focus even um, in this season not only on the first advent but the second advent, as we long for Christ's return, um, that that would mean something to us, that we would incorporate it in our day, uh, and that Christ would use it to draw us closer to Himself. Also, for those of us who are in Christ, that we would recognize uh, that it's, it's first suffering, then glory. And I know that it's, it, for, so for somebody in my life who had really, as I look and examine, has gone through very little suffering, um, it's humbling to say that to people that I see who I know are either actively going through suffering or have been through much suffering. Um, And yet, this is our lot. And I'm so glad that we get to do this together. I'm so glad that you, even in the midst of your tribulations and sufferings, have let people into your home through this church, that you've leaned on us, that we lean on you, we encourage one another, that we do this together because we are a church family. We're supposed to do this together. For those of you this morning who may just wrestle with where you stand with the Lord. Maybe you think you have a relationship with Him, 
Maybe you know that you don't. Maybe you're just questioning things. Um, I hope that you see very clearly from the Scriptures the work of the Savior on your behalf. That on the cross, the King Almighty humbled Himself and took the suffering, the eternal suffering that you and I have earned in our sin. But He didn't just do that. He actually gave us the perfect gift of His righteousness so that a holy God could look upon sinful, wretched people like you and I and see us only covered in the holiness of His Son. That's a good deal. So this morning, you have not by faith turned from your sins, repented of your sins, and trusted in this finished work, the substitutionary atonement of a Savior. Then I'll be down front at the end of the service. We'll have other men down front. We'd love to walk through what that looks like for you. We'd love to pray with you, to encourage you, to give you greater instructions and directions on on how you can have a relationship and know that you have a relationship with King Jesus. So we invite you, as Ms. Zandra sang, to come. To come and receive the gift of salvation.